guest and thank you very much for um, coming to join us in this UWA alumni webinar. My name is Fiona Allen and I'm the Chief Advancement Officer here at the University. So I have one of the best roles in the University. I get to connect with our amazing graduates and um, donors. We connect them to our students and we also connect them to our research. So what better job um, to connect three different constituents who are feeling equally passionate about education and research. So first of all, um, welcome to everyone across the globe who's joining us and a special good, um, good evening and welcome to our panelists. And um, we really appreciate that they've given up their time um, and their thoughts in joining us and we hope that you'll enjoy what they have to say. So UWA is extremely lucky. We have over 130 alumni spread across the world. Um, in particular, in um, our two highest places out with Perth, are actually Singapore and Malaysia. So we're really pleased that we're able to have this webinar that's going to focus on, um, on these areas tonight. Um, obviously, we're doing this in the backdrop of the COVID pandemic, and that has affected everyone throughout the globe. And in particular here, we have been doing a lot of work with our student body to make sure that they can still receive the same education like many of you did all those years ago. Um, in particular, we have launched an appeal to help um, our students um, with some financial help and also some um, mentoring and volunteering help. And so far we've raised over, I'm pleased to say that, thank you to our community, we have raised over $116,000, which goes into um, a larger pot, which is shared amongst our domestic and international students. And we've had a really um, heartfelt response and managed to secure over 85 volunteers, will probably be more around 90 volunteers, um, helping our students navigate this time, whether it's help with their rent, um, whether it's mentoring support, or whether it's just um, offers of um, other type of pro bono support in helping them. And particularly, um, we have tried to put some focus on our international students. Um, unfortunately, a lot of them have come over and they haven't been eligible for the schemes the government have been put on. So we do, um, we do have a, um, we do know that our international students need our help and we are trying to support them in this as much as possible. So thank you once again to our panelists um, and I'm just going to, I'll be back later afterwards with some final comments. But first of all, what I'd like to do is introduce you to our moderator, Madeline Tan. So Madeline has brought products and brands to market in almost 40 countries in highly technical industries such as gambling, robotics, education and IT in her career so far, it says. Um, she loves video gaming, plants her own vegetables and volunteer supports to support causes in groups in cerebral palsy, gender equity and anti-domestic violence. Madeline qualified as an accountant from the UK, UK and holds an MBA from the University of Western Australia majoring in international business. She tells me that she secretly enjoys keeping up to date on taxation regulations, despite not wanting to be in the profession. So we're really pleased that she's decided to um, help us moderate this panel tonight. And so I'm just gonna pass over to Madeline. Thanks, Madeline. Hi, thank you, Fiona. Um, I'm gonna start with just a quick message. Um, on behalf of the Malaysian and Singapore Alumni Network, particularly, um, We'd like to make sure that you know, a lot of our graduates and alumni try to participate in at least one UAGA event 
every year, just one a year. Even if you come at a social level um, or even if you're visiting or traveling in other places in other countries, reach out to the groups, you know, albeit we've all got very limited places and activities to go to nowadays, but just reach out to the local alumni network because we're always approachable. We can always have an informal catch up, you know, when you come into town anywhere at all. Um, and I think let's get straight into it. Good afternoon and evening and morning to all of you, wherever you are. Uh, I am Madeline and I'm an alumni from the year 2000. Sounds like a long time ago um, from the MBA. And like all of you, I've been impacted by the worldwide pandemic, I guess, in some way or other, um, from facing retrenchment, cutting down my own department staff, um, some sort of austerity drive, whether at work or on your home front and and I'm both um, dealing with working from home. I'm sure we've all got our stories to share there. Dealing with kids, coping with their online learning. And I guess it's just me, myself. I've gone through all this. And I'm sure all of you have so much more to share. But overall, I'm, I guess we're all here wanting to know how will COVID-19 change the future of work? From where we are for our region, um, which is our exact topic today. So before we start, I'm going to do some very quick housekeeping. First off, um, when you join us, you'll be automatically on mute, so check that you are if you're not already. Second of all, there will be some polls, um, so I will be launching some of the polls. We'd love to hear all your opinions, so get ready to respond to all those. When it pops, I'll give you a cue. And then on the background, um, the UWA team will be recording this and sharing this on a podcast later, so if you missed any parts of it, feel free to come back to it. So that's it for the housekeeping. I'd like to now bring your attention to our esteemed panelists. And um, to start off with, right close at home on our beloved UWA campus, Dr. Michael Gillen, who's the Associate Professor of Employment Relations at the UWA Business School. He's a well-known expert on industrial and employment relations and, re and labor regulations across Asia. He's published not only just books, articles, and which are all referenced widely. He's also done commissioned research reports for the International Labor Organization. That's fantastic. So he's so fortunate to be based on our beautiful UWA campus. So hello everyone to Michael. Next I'll introduce um, the other panelists who have all traveled far from campus and some of them for since quite a long, long time ago. So I'd like to know actually panelists, let me know what you miss about UWA when I get to you. So first off, Nick Sharfidin. He graduated in 2001 and is currently the director of Kazana National Berhad, a huge organization um, in Malaysia. And particularly, he oversees Kazana's corporate strategy, planning the functions, as well as operations, as well as performance management for the firm, which are all very pertinent in our uncertain times. So, Nick, hello, and what do you miss about UWA? Hi, everyone. Um, so, I, I studied law and commerce, uh, so lectures were mainly around the main campus. And my wife, uh, who was I was dating then, was in architecture school. So what I remember most was sort of wandering around the grounds together, sort of sitting on the lawn in front of the library, uh, watch, you know, seeing the peacocks outside the, the new Fortune Theatre, if I recall, and, and, and you know, just having lunch at the Sunken Gardens. Well, there you go, a law graduate who misses the architecture faculty. Hmm. Next, we are going to go to Singapore, where our other alumni are. First off, there is Damien. Damon Collins graduated in 1997, and he now heads the People and Organizational Department in um, APAC for Sigenta, that's based in Singapore. And he's a huge advocate for changing lives through learning. I guess that's particularly close to how we are all changing lives through necessity. So thanks for joining us today, Damien. 
Um, what do you miss about UWA? Thanks, Madeline. Uh, Nick actually beat me to it. Probably number one is the peacocks. And uh, a close number two would be the ducklings in, in spring. So I, I'd have to agree with it's more the grounds, I think, in the, uh, the wildlife. So thanks, oh, Madeline. I'm feeling nostalgic already. <laughs> um, last but not least, Michelle, um, she graduated um, in 2000 um, through for, on both um, engineering and commerce. And now um, she's based in Singapore. She's a very versatile lady who's been on both sides of the spectrum from hands-on operations and logistics all the way to policy making and strategic planning and private and public sectors. So she's currently the executive director for the Urban Land Institute of Singapore's branch. So Michelle, what do you miss about UWA? I would say that because I was studying both engineering and commerce, um, I had to spend a lot of time in Reed Library because I was always shuttling between my lectures on both sides of the campus. So Reed Library was like my second home. Oh no. <laughs> Those nightmares. But okay. I grew to love it though. So. <laughs> I know. Look, I'm sure across all of us, all the listeners in and participants here, we all miss the campus very much. So one day we'll all go back for a nice visit when we um, can travel again. So I'm going to start very, very quickly taking on um, first a very global perspective um, on the impact of the COVID-19. So once we start with the global, we'll move down to the regional and then down to um, you know, our own respective environments. So let's do a quick funnel through. The first discussion I want to direct to is Michael. Um, you know, your research covers the region. So what are your thoughts on the long term impact of this pandemic across industries, across employment relations, across logistics, and, and I guess to all of us, across travel. Thanks, Madeline. Uh, you know, one thing you should have thought about before is very dangerous to ask an academic to speak at an event that's time constrained. Because as you all know, as graduates, we love to talk for a long time, usually for 45 minutes. So if I'm taking too long, you better cut me off or cut me out, okay? All right, so you've been duly this. instructed. Okay, thanks a lot for the invitation to speak at this event. I think it's a very interesting topic. Um, in terms of the question about the impact on industries, obviously it's a, that's a huge question. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of simple answer, and that's it's clear that every single industry simultaneously is reconsidering its business model and the sustainability of its business model. So really this, everyone talks about how unprecedented the crisis is, but I don't think any of us can remember a time where every single industry, every workplace is really fundamentally questioning the basis of its business model, the sustainability of that model. Now that's very frightening, but in a way it's kind of a little bit exciting as well, because we all have to start to think in new ways. Maybe it jolts us out of some of our old familiar grooves. I think this is a very interesting moment for all businesses. And clearly there are some industries where employment is expanding rapidly. I mean, if you're in health right now, in health services, there's this upsurge in the need for more employees and workers in that sector. In other sectors, we're seeing sharp contractions. And clearly industries that are reliant on flows of people, tourism and aviation have contracted and to a certain extent collapsed to an unprecedented extent. It's a pretty obvious point, but an important one is I think those industries will take a very long time to recover if they ever do, and they'll be reconstituted in a new state. There'll be a lot of industry consolidation, a lot of employment losses in those sectors, and they're gonna to have to reimagine their future in a sense. So uh, tremendous challenges. 
Other industries which are very connected into global supply chains and particularly manufacturing have also been severely impacted. So my own current research project is looking at garment manufacturing in Southeast Asia and particularly looking at employment relations in garment manufacturing, conditions of work, regulation of work, um, and also the way in which those industries have evolved over time. And there, of course, we've seen quite rapid and severe disruptions to uh, manufacturing in many Southeast Asian countries. Now, some of the key garment manufacturing countries in the region are heavily reliant on that industry in terms of contributing to formal sector employment and in terms of their manufacturing GDP. So Myanmar and Cambodia would be very clear examples of that, where they're really very important in the overall economy in terms of contributing to employment and to GDP. And they've been severely impacted by this crisis in a very rapid time frame. In fact, they were severely impacted even before cases of COVID-19 began to appear in those countries. And the reason why is they rely on a so-called cut-make-pack model of garment manufacturing. That is, they completely import the fabric used to make the clothes that most of us wear, buying from global brands, and the machinery is also imported. So very rapidly, when the COVID-19 crisis hit China, it disrupted the supply of fabrics to garment manufacturing factories across the whole Asian region, which disrupted the factory production and led to the standing down of some workers and the closure of some factories and the contraction of, of the ability to produce the goods. Then, of course, uh, we've also seen the collapse of consumer demand in Europe and in North America for branded garments manufactured in these factories. So you have a kind of downstream crisis in the sense of the actual raw materials into the process. You also have collapsing consumer demand and that's meant that a number of these factories have closed or workers have been stood down in a very rapid space of time. We've also seen some brands who contract from these supplier factories um, failing to honour supply contracts and orders. We've had some brands that have been better than others. They're not all bad. Some have been pretty good in terms of uh, honouring commitments. Others, not so much so. So it's created this great uncertainty and I think also raised questions about the viability and the future of those industries. I think they will continue and they may, it may even become larger over time, but it again raises the need to, to rethink the sustainability of that particular industry as an example. And I think particularly thinking about the role of governments in terms of trying to increase value adding in the supply chain in terms of domestic manufacturing so that maybe they begin to produce more fabrics and textiles in terms of the raw material inputs but also maybe thinking about diversifying uh, markets and maybe looking at regional and domestic uh, consumption as much as uh, exporting to uh, so-called Western markets. So I think there's a lot of rethinking that needs to be done there about the sustainability of, of that industry, just as one example. Overall though, while that might sound as if, you know, manufacturing is going to go and decline in Southeast Asia, I think it's actually the opposite. I think labor intensive manufacturing is likely to increase in the region once the COVID-19 crisis is you know, either resolved or partly resolved. And I think the reason for that is we already saw a trend towards an increase in foreign direct investment in the region, partly as a result of the US-China tensions and trade war. So I think Southeast Asia is a region 
is seen or increasingly seen as a kind of almost safe haven for investors where, um, you know, there are ups and downs in terms of institutions and policies, but overall relatively safe environment, uh, reasonably effective and stable environment uh, for that investment. I think Vietnam's a good case in point. You know, uh, really rapid growth in manufacturing, in investment, it's really performed very well in the COVID-19 crisis. And because of the US-China trade tensions, I think it's likely to increase. Um, employment, very quickly. I think the key thing here in terms of employment relations is everything's gonna be framed around job security and continuity of employment. So this is gonna create the conditions where employees may be looking to work a few days less in return for keeping their jobs or even some wage cuts. But in the, again, in the long term, that's not gonna be a sustainable solution because that would then suppress domestic demand. Um, so I think, again, government's gonna to have to play a role there in terms of bridging that gap. It also raises really important questions about social protection and the role of government in terms of underwriting um, workers who are, find themselves unemployed or in precarious situation raises questions about income inequality and also inequalities inherent within the labour market. I think clearly what we see, not just in Southeast Asia, but in many countries, is a bifurcated labour market. So we have the professionals who are able to work from home during this crisis, probably people like you and I, knowledge workers or professional workers, we're able to work from home, but there's also a category of workers who are in precarious or contingent forms of employment are probably the ones who are going to be delivering you food or delivering you products that you've ordered online. Now they, many of them, may not have an employment contract, they're contingently employed, they have no choice but to work and they may even, may even have to work when they're sick, when they have a temperature. So their precarity is not just a risk to themselves, it's a risk to all and that's been really clearly exposed in this crisis and I think that again raises real challenges governments, for citizens, for employers to think about how can we improve social protection for all so that we're all protected. Now I know I'm just about out of time but the other one I'll quickly raise on employment and it'll probably come up with some of the other panellists I think is, is fascinating about this crisis is the real disruption of this artificial divide between saying we have working lives and home lives. Now clearly work has come home and the production of work in the home is also about the production of family and care within the home. And those things are happening simultaneously. In fact, Madeline, you mentioned it in your introduction. It's probably this thing that's right at the forefront of our minds. So it really raises interesting and I think profound questions about the future of work. You know, what are the responsibilities of the employer when people are working from home? How far do those responsibilities and obligations extend in terms of looking after workers or supervising workers? making sure they have a, a safe uh, working environment. What are the obligations of an employee when they're working from home? These things are ambiguous, both in law and in practice in most countries. And maybe the most important question, is there enough trust and respect in the employment relationship to bridge that divide between the employee at home and the employer somewhere else? I think one of the interesting phenomena out of this crisis, and maybe Damien will say more about this later on, is the anecdotal evidence is that productivity has gone up in many organisations, which I think is a really clear example, if managers didn't already know this, you should trust your workforce. 
they will deliver, even if you're not watching them and monitoring them every second of the day. Uh, so I think that's an important point. Um, I'll probably leave logistics and travel because I'm sure I've more than used yeah. up my time, but I did warn you, Madeline. <laughs> you're a true academic, Michael, but absolutely huge level perspectives um, shared there. And I think it will also be useful to, you know, to get the, we've got about 90 over people participating right now, which is great numbers. So what I'm going to do for the 90 or so, can you take a look at the poll that I'm putting right now? Because before we go on to the next panelist um, discussion, do you think the world will return to normal given that we've got so much changes, so much frightening things, but also quite an adventure for all of us in our careers to take on? And I guess, you know, just very quickly, Michael, I'm just going to give you a quick, an quick answer now. Do you think we will go back to our old normal without um, looking at the poll results? <laughs> if you're asking me, I think, I think, you know, what was the old normal is maybe another question, you know. I think there was already a kind of a lot of questioning about the future of work. And in a way, I think the mm. future of work debate is often about robots and automation and technology and it is all of those things that's for sure but I think it's also questioning about the how we work how we want to work where we should be heading in terms of the future of work so I don't think we're heading back yeah. to the normal because I think the normal wasn't working in the past anyway so I think it's just well, going to reinforce Michael, those questions. I'm going to grade your answer right now by sharing the poll um, <laughs> and um, yeah a lot of people do concur with you if you look at what's on your screen right now 77 of people don't think we will have our new normal or we won't have a normal anymore and you know a bugbear of mine is calling it new normal i'm starting to get a bit irritated i guess when people say oh here's the new normal but <laughs> there you go so i think everyone's feeling the changes and the changes are probably going to be for the long run i'm going to actually move straight away now to the second part of our question because i want to get the more funnel down view of it so let's get nick now um to share his perspective at a regional level. So what do you think Southeast Asian particular, Southeast Asian governments should do in order to support industry and workforce and you know, take away some of these frightening insecurities in order to ensure that this region, as Michael pointed out, is, remains a viable economy and a powerhouse? Nick, over to you. Yeah. Okay, so um, maybe not uh, to frame it as what should be, they be doing, maybe I'll start off with, with just uh, explaining what the governments have been doing. So if you look at the policy response in ASEAN, it's been quite varied. You know, at the macro level, uh, you know, stimulus packages that have been announced by the countries range from about 1% to 2% from the likes of Philippines, Indonesia, to about 4% 4, 4 in Thailand and you know, 11 17% in Singapore and Malaysia. If you look at other major economies, you know, they all range between 10 to 20% you know, in, for the likes of the US, UK, Germany, France. I think only China was at about 6, 6%. But I think if you look at it closer, the, the types of measures that were, were being um, sort of rolled out were mostly non-financial, non, non non-fiscal support. So, uh, you know, i.e. not the cash uh, handouts. So uh, examples, you know, in, in Malaysia, I think it's probably similar to all the other markets. There were uh, a lot of uh, debt uh, relief being provided in terms of uh, either loan guarantees or uh, moratorium in terms of uh, repayment uh, you know, on your monthly uh, loan repayments and interest. Um, you know, the, the governments in Malaysia has provided sort of reduction in electricity bills, you know, rentals in government um, premises. 
Uh, additionally, I think if you look at the direct fiscal support, which is, I think, uh, very, very helpful, especially for SMEs, you know, is the form of wage subsidy. So they, they actually supplement the wages for the companies in exchange for them not laying off uh, the employees. Uh, and, and additionally, I think for, for those who are unemployed or who have lost jobs or who, are, who rely on daily wages, I think the, the direct uh, sort of cash handouts that were provided. So I think these are quite um, sufficient, I mean, ha have been quite helpful. Uh, another thing that, that Malaysia has done is actually allowed the, uh, you to withdraw your pension savings. Uh, so, so I think that there's a lot that has been done. Whether these are adequate is, is quite unclear to me. In the short term, you know, they provide relief during the lockdown period. But what happens there? You know, will there be a second, third wave? And what happens? Uh, so those are the, some some of the questions that, that come to mind. How fast will uh, the other the other question is how fast will these uh, sort of um, support uh, be felt uh, on the ground? So there's a there's a uh, issue with with, with timing uh, with some of this cash trickling down and, and whether by the time it gets down to the company it may be too late and, and companies or SMEs will be folded. Uh, I think the, the third question is, is, is you know, whether the governments have enough room to maneuver uh, in, in, in the longer run. So, uh, you know, countries like Malaysia, Indonesia, Brunei, uh, you know, even Vietnam and Thailand, they, they have a, a portion of the budget coming from oil and with the fall in oil prices, you know, I think that there could be uh, impact to the contributions of the government. So, so again, maybe not answering your question, but um, I think there's a lot that's already been done, but I, I think the jury is still out whether it's enough to, to really uh, help the, the economy and, and maybe slow down the, the recession, or at least, sorry, not slow down, has, uh, hasten uh, our recovery. Yeah. I think, I mean, across the region, governments have come through in all sorts of forms on whatever they can afford. I mean, you know, in as much as the Indonesian government can afford, um, they're, up, they're battling uphill in that place. You know, so I guess in some sense, governments do try. Um, I mean, to me on a personal level, letting me access my superannuation fund is basically using, you know, telling me to spend my money early instead of planning for my retirement, but that's me. So I guess second part of it, Nick, um, you know, we might want to look at what well, we're sort of all going, well, the government should do this and that for us, but you know, kind of what really should SMEs be doing? And whilst you're doing that, I'd like everybody else um, I'm going to launch the second poll because I'd like to know, do you feel governments are doing enough for the SMEs? And meanwhile, Nick, while we're waiting for them to think that through, how about you tell me, do you think SMEs themselves are doing enough to help themselves? So I think, you know, if you look at this as a crisis situation, the first impulse for a lot of SMEs is to look at self-preservation. You know, and for any businesses, uh, you know, the, the first thing they look at is cash, right? Cash is king. And it's probably the main focus. However, I think for, for, for the better SMEs, those who can afford it, should, you know, I think this is an opportune time to take, uh, take a step back and ask themselves you know, maybe two or three questions. Firstly, I think it's just to reevaluate your business. What has worked well? What has not worked well? You know, is the model, as, as Michael uh, sort of pointed out earlier, is it still relevant in the future? You know, given that things are more digital, you're dealing with uncertainties like COVID-19, uh, supply chain disruptions and, and so on. Uh, and, and, and maybe even is, is your business resilient to, to things like climate change? A second thing I think the SME should do is look after your people. Um, you know, whether, what, what, what we can do to support their employees. Uh, is it possible to share the burden across organization? 
and also not not to think too short term. Um, I think you know a lot of a lot of companies are looking at you know should they let people go, but then you know if you have to think about when business picks up in 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 six months to one year's time, you have to look at rehiring and and training. You know, and, and I think the third thing in terms of people is look, what skills do you want your employees to have? And I think we'll probably you know allow some of the other panelists to also touch on that. What kind of skill sets are required moving forward? And I think finally, just to avoid uh, wallowing in the doom and gloom, you know, while there's a lot of uncertainty, you don't know whether the storm is over, it's just started. I think SMEs should also start thinking about what new opportunities may present themselves. You know, some sort of uh, um, examples that you know people have looked uh, gone into sort of manufacturing uh, face masks or face shields and PPE. Some uh, others have fast tracked their transition to online business, um, and then. You know, others have taken opportunity to look at onshoring or reshoring. You know, given the the, the supply chain disruptions uh, you know, in to China. So I think, you know, take a, a, a more opportunistic view. I think that will be helpful. I think it will be interesting. Um, while I'm sharing the poll results right now, of whether the governments have done enough, but I think it will be interesting to see those that have jumped on new opportunities, restructured. You know, their businesses in the survival mode. You know, what happens to them once things start to pare down back to the regular business when, you know, we're all coming out from lockdown and we go back to, well, no one's kind of going to be ordering as much as, you know, or, or shopping online anymore. So what happens to those ones? So that's kind of next phase I can, I can guess, you know, post-COVID. But interesting that a majority think that, yep, they are doing some support, some good support, in fact, but sometimes not quite in the right areas. So I guess, Nick, you shared the point about having a longer term rather than trying to think if I can survive next week. Taking care of employees is a big thing. I think Australia's kind of gone down the path of let's take care of the employees first, whereas a lot of the Southeast Asian ones, the governments have looked at let's take care of the businesses first and hope they'll take care of the employees. So with perspectives, I'm going to stop sharing those ones here. That all. Now, um, obviously, a lot of the um, participants today, we've all got different situations and a lot of questions that you probably want to ask the panelists. So make sure that um, you hit the Q&A button over there and um, put your questions in there so that we can pick those up um, towards the second half of this webinar. So put your questions in and put our panelists on the spot. So I guess the next part will be more our own personal lives. Um, you know, I'm going to Damien on the hotspot right now. Well, given that a lot of places are adopting work from home, um, apparently as a new model, what do you think the future will be like for workers, for staff in terms of working behavior? How do we go about doing performance management? You know, I know when we're all working from home, there's so much home distractions. Um, what about shifts in how HR should approach how HR should work, um, even accessibility equity, because some people um, are able to work from home a lot easier than knowledge workers, and some probably will never be able to work from home. So what do you think, Damien? Uh, yeah, thanks, Madeline, and hi, everyone, and thanks for the opportunity uh, to, to speak today. I think from the outset, it's important to recognise that, uh, that most, if, um, if not all of the current discussion, even debate about working from home and telecommuting and and uh, you know, virtual offices is not necessarily new. So clearly a lot of it's been driven by the safety and welfare concerns around the pandemic. But a lot of the current discussion around the benefits and risk associated with, with moving to you know, more of a work from home model have been around actually for a long time. But what has shifted 
is the speed at, with, at which these discussions are happening. Um, so my view is really essentially um, like a forced experiment of sorts, which has really generated a lot of learnings, I think, at multiple levels. So individual, team, organization, country, and, and global levels, just with respect to how um, work gets done. I think, um, you know, touching on the theme of equity and inclusion, I think the, I view the appetite for and degree to which organisations have embraced work from home, you know, up to date and certainly throughout the pandemic uh, as a way of working is really very, very broad spectrum. Um, and to the point that Michael um, brought up as well, there really needs to be acknowledgement that not all positions, even within the same organisation, lend themselves to, to readily working virtually or, or working from home. So I think, um, I think this needs to be acknowledged up front um, and openly. Um, because it could inadvertently or, you know, um, certainly not deliberately become a discussion of inclusion and exclusion. So reinforcing pre-existing perceptions that not everyone e equally benefits from globalisation and clearly that was a reality pre-pandemic. Um, rapidly advancing technology and an increasingly knowledge-based economy um, and now the consideration of remote or virtual working arrangements could actually exacerbate that, I think, if, if we're not careful. Um, yeah, so the, the question of equity and inclusion, I think, needs to be factored into the equation from the beginning and uh, discussed very openly. Um, I think there's clearly a lot of reflection and learning uh, happening at the individual level, and I, I'm sure that applies for everyone on the call today. Um, from my perspective, being in OD and HR within a large organisation, I hear a lot of strong recurring themes, really a lot of strong themes around ad adaptation, so initial kind of shock and confusion, but people and not only adapting, and a lot of people are actually embracing the new way of working, and I'd have to put myself into that school. Traditionally, I wasn't a big fan of working from home, um, but I've been converted 180 degrees. So um, I'm hearing benefits around increased productivity. I think as, as Michael uh, shared as well, more time flexibility, clearly decreased or zero commuting time, uh, less distraction and more opportunity for what we might call deep work. But at the same time, I also, both uh, hearing um, reports of um, working hours actually being longer, not shorter, which would often said would sound counterintuitive before we embarked in this um, in this journey together. I think challenges in creating work and non-work boundaries, as Michael um, touched on as well, ergonomic ergonomic concerns, um, you know, and the role, roles and responsibilities of employer and employees there, uh, social isolation and a desire for human interaction. Um, Detachment from a, a team or a company purpose as well. Uh, fatigue, uh, including Zoom fatigue, which I, I hope we're not contributing too much today. And also increased stress levels um, from individuals. Um, and, but these I'm also noticing can be reported across um, individuals, but also the, the same reports within the same individual. So clearly there's needs and preferences vary significantly at an individual level. So between employees and within the same employee over time, which I think we'll need to navigate together and um, you know, need to be certainly accommodated in the medium term. Um, I think this has got real implications for the way that we um, lead and manage people and employees, including performance management. Um, again, that's gonna be impacted by individual manager and leader preferences and, and styles as well. Um, and also the styles and preferences of those being led. You know, Almost all of us have a leader or a boss as well. Um, if we look at managing performance, what I'm seeing in my own organization as least is much more focused on assessing performance through output and impact. 
and less on hours in the seat or visible hours in the seat, you know, that you can see someone at their desk. I think this is accelerating the need for greater levels of empowerment, um, trust, which Michael brought up right from the start as well, and vulnerability um, by managers and leaders. Um, again, we're noting that this is much easier for some um, managers and leaders than others. It's their natural seat sweet spot. So for them, it's very easy to navigate. Um, while others are really struggling with it, and I think what they're feeling often is a perception of loss of control or reduced control, and even translating often to reduced power as well. Um, but I think the expectations of you know, having a contemporary leaders that lead on, on foundations of trust and empowerment and authenticity, they're not new. So they, they existed pre-COVID. Uh, what I think is now is it's actually making it much more transparent and intensifying or amplifying the need for that type of um, leadership. So I think what it's actually highlighting for, for us at least is where, um, where there's a need um, for more development, more focus on, on building that capability and skills in, in our leaders. And the last point, um, I would also want to say more from a talent perspective, I think that um, the overall trend of increasing segments of you know, knowledge-based economies you know, making themselves, uh, making available or the use of work from home and virtual working arrangements is not new. That trend is not going to reverse, you know, COVID or non-COVID, I think. Um, and what the way I see it is the future of work, clearly it's not a destination or one point in time, but I think as a, as a journey, I think it's arriving much sooner than a lot of organisations expected. Um, and I don't think a lot of organisations will necessarily have the luxury of choice, uh, whether they choose to offer these work practices to, to certain segments and we acknowledge that not necessarily all industries or all roles can lend themselves to it but I think it's actually going to be part um, of a lot of companies value proposition and a really important consideration when you think that you're competing for talent so we've seen a lot of large organizations often or typically it's the tech sector that might lead with a lot of these initiatives and if we're looking to compete which we already hear you know pre-pandemic about this global war for talent I think it's just going to amplify um, that as well, because what we're also seeing, we are seeing productivity productivity levels increase. And what's also demonstrating, we've had experience with this in my organization as well, is that you don't even necessarily need to be in the same city, country, time zone, or even continent, um, you know, to do the same role very effectively as well. So we're actually reconsidering the, the global roles actually have to be based in Switzerland, you know, for us, for example. So I think it's really opened up a really healthy uh, dialogue as well. So. Thanks, Madeline, and just wanted to touch on a few points very quickly. So thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's great. I mean, there's so, so much positives coming out of this, but, mm. you know, just curiously, um, we, I'm just looking through some of the um, participant questions on the floor right now. Um, there's one I think that's particularly great. If you want to carry on on your train of thought, but very, very quickly respond to this. Yep. Um, the Asian work culture, and you're working in Singapore, you know, people are used to doing long hours and the productivity has probably gone up because they are now blurring personal and work life at home. But the, the work, Asian work culture, you know, this is one of the questions on the floor. There is a lot of human to human face interaction, face to face. And it's an important part of the Asian culture and the work culture. And especially when it comes to office politics. So now that we don't have face to face, how will employees play office politics? remotely <laughs> well I, well i think um reduction in work politics can only be a good thing <laughs> that's probably the personal view um but I, I think going to michael's point at the beginning we are we are seeing tangible increases in 
productivity, but we're not completely sure where they're all coming from. You know, I think some of that is folks maybe wanting to be or needing to be more seen because they're working virtually. And that was always a challenge pre-COVID as well. I do feel though a lot of that's coming from folks being able to focus more and have less distractions in a, in a social working environment. Um, and I, on my honest reflection, I'm sometimes contributing to that distraction for others. Um, but, but I think we also need to acknowledge that the, again, use the word that you don't like, Madeline, the new normal won't, <laughs> be, won't be as extreme as what we're, where we're in now. I think this is the, the, the far end swing of the pendulum. So I think it, when, it, when it swings back, we'll just be in a position where we can make more conscious choices of where we are to do the type of work that we need to do. So rather than default, I need to be at my desk every morning at eight or nine, it can, well, what type of work am I doing today? And who do I need to have an exchange with or interact with? And that it's more conscious, I think, job design. So yeah, that would be my quick answer it'll, to that. It'll be a bit harder for that person who constantly just wants to look busy without actually high productivity, I guess. Which I think is a good thing. We will be looking at, um, uh, you know, rather, and, and that's a real thing. We've all seen it. Rather, we're looking at actual tangible outcome and impact rather than busyness and yeah. um, just looking busy. Okay. Um, I'm going to pick another question also from the floor. Um, and in particular, I probably want to give this back also um, to Michael in terms of his expertise area. But I guess the other panelists, you know, by all means, feel free to please jump in because this is really relevant to all of us. Um, the question from the floor is, which sector will be hit the hardest in the long term in ASEAN? Um, well, I think I kind of alluded to that in my opening comments, really, is I, I think the sectors that are based around flows of people, um, tourism, aviation, I mean, it's fairly clear. I mean, they're, they're likely to be a recovery at some point, um, but I, I think they're, they're going to be most most impacted. I think my view is that there's a lot of upside for the region in terms of manufacturing for the reasons I already discussed. Um, services as well, I think, you know, uh, the sort of platform-based services uh, have been increased demand because of COVID-19. I think the Southeast Asia region is really interesting in terms of the kind of emergence of, uh, you know, really effective, um, successful platform-based, internet-based companies in the region. So I think service sector work, I don't see a decline there. I think it'll be particular segments, but I think there's a lot of um, bounce back potential in my view uh, for the region. Maybe I'm, I'm seeing the world through optimistic eyes, but I, I actually do think that. There are no students on campus though, Michael. <laughs> okay, um, other panelists? What's your thoughts on which will be the hardest hit sectors, given that you know, we are across the board in different areas? Maybe just to add, I think uh, there is a lot of uncertainty in terms of how bad this recession uh, will, will get, and then therefore, what could, uh, how could the financial services sector, the banks, be impacted? So one of the things that, that we've seen in, in, in the U.S. banks is how they're providing you know, uh, and 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 how will that sort of play out? Uh, it all depends on how long this goes on for, and whether there's a second, third wave of of the disease. Um, I'm going to go straight into another poll because this will lead um, into Michelle, who's our next panelist, and I've got a very curly question for her. We've all talked about our work from home situations. Um, I think one of the things, the unsaid is. Do we think about the mental health and well-being of these employees who are now 
very productive, according to Damien. If we've all increased in our work time and hours by lessening commute. But I think mental health, work health is an important thing. So I guess I'm going to put this poll out to um, all the participants here. Are you worried about going back into your workplace? Um, you know, given that we've all kind of adapted quite well to the WFH situation. And whilst we're working, you know, in work from home situations, there are a lot of businesses who are progressively opening up. Um, there are those who cannot even work from home to start with. And there's going to be changes when we all go back. So, Michelle, um, in your expertise in terms of space usage, land usage, mm -hmm. and especially in a very crowded space like Singapore, um, you know, social distancing being the forefront as well. But what do you think is the future in terms of our space usage, um, you know, using physical spaces, not just that, but even digital spaces? Mm -hmm. And how do we optimize space use, I guess, in the new normal? <laughs> sure. Um, I think I'll, I'll go on from what Damien said. I totally agree with him that I think we're just seeing a very sudden uh, extreme right now uh, because everyone's just knee-jerking the best they can to the situation and just trying to do everything. So everyone's just sucking it up right now, I believe. We will go back to, I feel, a, a rebalance of sorts. Um, so I think that brings about a tricky situation. And I hope a lot of businesses out there are starting to use this time, if they haven't already, to really think about what is their core workforce. Not everyone is going to want to or can work from home. Not everyone is comfortable with working in an office anymore. Um, especially if they're being personally affected by COVID-19. So I think there is going to be a lot of flux in, in conversations, in supply and demand. There is no more standardized uh, go-to answers. Um, and this is throwing a lot of questions up in the air. So a lot of people who are affected are, I suppose, the landlords and the tenants. Um, as we know, the, the likes of the WeWorks, um, Distri, um, and uh, this kind of uh, co-working spaces have been rising in popularity, but I must say they're also equally affected by COVID-19. I think in time to come, when there is a rebalance, I think their business model is going to continue to be popular. Um, but in the larger scheme of things, if I look at it from an ecosystem, we're seeing a lot of landlords, uh, developers who were initially uh, looking already at a core and flex model, meaning to say there will be an anchor tenant or a few tenants who will be the base um, of, their, of their revenue for rental. And then you'll have your co-working space for your gig economy and for your freelancers and for your startups, right? But now I don't think that's going to be the case. Now people looking at co-working space or even anchor tenants themselves might have to consider maybe I need to actually myself holistically look at operating predominantly with a flex space. Flex space means to say, uh, there's no preset number of, of tables, uh, of meeting rooms, of pantry space. You know, all of these things need to be reconsidered. Now, I'm bringing this up because it is actually going to hit every single one of us personally. The overheads of all businesses affects our pay, our remuneration. The faster businesses can figure out how they're going to figure out their major overhead is going to help us um, figure out uh, cost management, PNL, and then that would then trickle down into looking at sustaining workforce, looking at uh, perhaps if you're going through pay cuts, bringing that off, um, looking at bonuses and pay. And that is, to me, the more important part. So every employee, if you're an employee, should actually be very uh, involved in the conversation about workspace. Do I really need 
my desk at work anymore? Can I work from home? And can I absorb that as an employer? I need to think if I want to be an employer of a choice, the conversation is going to be different. It's no longer about providing an ergonomic workspace or a fun workspace. It's now going to be more about, okay, can I help to offset some costs for you to work from home? Can I help you upgrade your IT infrastructure? Can I offset some of your electricity bills? The government is already doing that one off, but can the employer actually do that for you instead? Instead of uh, transport allowances, can I give you electricity allowances or um, upgrading of your IT hardware on an annual basis, for example, which I think would be much appreciated. Um, in, and for those who cannot work from home, because if you live, in, especially in Singapore, if you're living in a multi-generational family in a HDB flat, you do not have the space for two adults uh, and one young executive child to be working from home. You just cannot. So there's always considerations. And I think Google is, uh, is I think it just came out in the news uh, that they're giving a 1,000 USD allowance uh, or a stipend of some sort uh, for IT infrastructure for their staff who choose to work from home. You know, I think it's a very conscious effort and it's a good effort on their part because they're really starting to think about the practical impact of working from home versus working in the office and balancing it. Um, so I think more and more, the faster a company can figure out their BCP, their business continuity plan, what is your percentage of staff, maybe not just in terms of percentage, in terms of quantum, but in terms of your skeletal crew. Um, who do you really need to have in the office who can you afford to allow a, a lot of flex when it comes to working arrangements? Figure out that space you need, then talk to your landlord about that, right? Then you figure out your rental because right now everyone is paying rental for a new space. Um, we're going to see a lot of impact, unfortunately, to the, to the wider space um, because in Singapore especially, and it's actually quite trending around the world, uh, what we call integrated developments. So you have an office, you have apartments, you have retail, you have F&B, and all your essential services like uh, banking and medical services, kind of all in one nice locale, right? You've got nice garden and public spaces. But now with all of this, uh, I suppose the uprising of hyper-locality, where everyone is now just preferring to work within their precinct or their home space, um, what do you do about the footfall or the lack of footfall in a mall? and the mixed-use development. So in Singapore, we have so many mixed-use developments. And the moment you lose your office patrons, there goes your F&B, there goes your retail, there goes everything. And the one that has to shoulder the, the amalgamation of this impact as a landlord, the developers. So I, I, because I work for Urban Land Institute and most of my members are the developers, I really feel for them and we're trying our best to figure out what is the best practice moving forward. Um, so these are conversations that we're still having. Well, I think, um, you know, you've raised a pertinent question and it relates, I guess, to one of the questions that came through from the floor. Um, you know, we're all happy working from home, but what can companies do to help the local small businesses? The people working from home means that no one's going outside to buy coffee or buy lunch, you know, and having their breaks around in the little retail shops, typically in an office tower. What do you think about the business impact and what can we do to even, you know, address some of these businesses that are affected from the lack of footfall? Um, so I do think that there is a need for um, a combination of collaboration uh, of physical-based businesses to work with digital-based businesses. 
So they, you can't assume that just because everyone's going uh, off well, digital now that the digital businesses are doing very well. You look at Grab, they're actually doing the, the very um, austere measures as well. They're having to do pay cuts. They're going to ask people to take um, no pay leave. They're also easily affected. But what I feel can happen is if we look at the different and uh, modern business model where the FMB works with your tech platform partner, how do you leverage off each other better? Right now, I think it's very messy. Uh, there's a lot of competition. Everyone's just trying to fight for crumbs. Um, and that's also because we ourselves as individuals have not really settled into a new rhythm yet. It's very unpredictable. But I think the, the sooner a business can work out a steady collaboration with a partner, a digital partner, um, work with staff, get them engaged. Like I said, you must get the staff engaged in the conversation about you want to work from home, you will work in the office, what do you prefer, how do we do engagement um, beyond just you know, uh, Zoom meetings because how do I motivate you? How do I build morale? How do I bring in new staff and get him to be part of the team? You know, there's all these factors that must be considered and cannot be just sidelined. It's not just about can we continue to work from home or not? There's all these ancillary issues. So I think the moment a company can have that conversation with staff, HR is going to be very important. Um, and find a digital partner to have that conversation with, work out the new setting, I wouldn't say normal. Um, and I think that would make a lot of people feel more assured and in themselves, work out a new rhythm at home as well. And I think that is the path for the future of work and the future of our living. Now, I think I'm just sharing some quick results um, from our participants. Um, and about 70% of us are not worried about going back to our usual workplaces, albeit, you know, different setup, different sort of pace of things, perhaps, um, and some in mixed mode. But I think it also shows the confidence of being a UWA graduate. We know we've got some skills to kind of get us through it. So 70% is very, very positive. And we are, I guess we're all at the point of looking forward to going back into workplace and trying to reestablish new norms. Um, I've got quite a few more questions. So in the meantime, I'd like to open to all the panelists that we have in front of us. Um, I'd like you guys to think through and tell me, what do you think are two most important skills in order for our people here in, um, and our graduates to be future ready for post-pandemic work conditions? What skills should they develop? Um, you know, let me... Let me hear what you guys think. Just feel free to jump in. Two skills each. Uh, it's probably a pretty obvious one, but uh, I mean, there's more and more attention in terms of business education to, you know, a combination of the, if you like, the harder skills and knowledges, but also the creative and critical thinking skills. And if nothing else, a crisis really, it means that people have to think swiftly. They have to think critically and creatively in a very short space of time. And I think we have seen evidence of that, but those skills are things you can continue to work on and develop, um, possibly through continuing to engage with um, lifelong learning. Damien, what's your thought in terms of skills? Because this is really relevant. We've had a couple of people already ask, how can we show our employers that we are ready to progress in our present or current or new career post-pandemic? What skills do we need? Yeah, for, for me, I think, and this is certainly around pre-pandemic as well, would be self-awareness, you know, continue to expand the aperture and increase that, that blue window that you've got for yourself. Uh, and, and relating to what Michael said as well, uh, I think 
uh, a learning mindset, but I, I'd qualify that by calling it a learning and doing mindset. Um, so you know, it's great to build knowledge, but actually try new things and learn from that uh, as well. Nick, what yep. skills do uh, we need so, to be relevant? So to me, the two things, one is uh, basically uh, with people, more people working from home, uh, skills like uh, sort of uh, augmented reality, virtual reality programming will be more so relevant, not only for standalone products, but also for services like uh, engineers, doctors, being able to work remotely. Uh, second one is, I think, dealing with stress and psychological issues. I think this working from home has created a lot of stress uh, among people uh, with the uncertainty, with people losing jobs. And then, you know, as you know, either as a counselor or, or as a manager, as a CEO or, or a senior manager for a company, you need to be able to sort of counsel and advise uh, and coach your, your people to, to how to manage stressful situations like we're facing now. Michelle, wrap it off for us. What do you think are the relevant skills to get us there? Um, okay, so I agree with all the, uh, the soft aspects in terms of the skills. Uh, I also want to call to attention that DBS made headlines when they announced that they were still going to hire quite a fair number of people, I think 2,000 people. Um, and this predominantly in the digital space. So you've got your cybersecurity, uh, data analytics, UI, UX. I mean, so these are all your skills of the future. Um, so if you have those or you're planning to learn those, you will be highly relevant for sure. Um, but beyond that, I think I would like to look at things from a strata point of view. So the, your younger workforce is now going to be quite respected because they're going to be very savvy with socializing on, on media, on digital media, whereas the older seniors might not be that savvy with it. So I think there's going to be a rebalance in, I wouldn't say politics, but in terms of office dynamics. Um, the older ones will have to start to pick up and learn how to do PowerPoint themselves, I think, <laughs> instead of just asking that intern to do it for them. I think there's a lot of rebalancing um, of skills for us to be able to be almost self-sufficient in a way, because you can't rely on somebody to be at your back and call. Um, at, at midnight, for example, you do want to keep that respect of time. Uh, we can be more productive, but that shouldn't mean that because we're 7-11, we're open and we're always on our laptop, even at 12 a.m. Um, so I would say that in terms of skills, you've got your digital technical skills, which we all know we need. Um, but I think in terms of being able to work the dynamics with one another within as a colleague between the age gaps, I think it's very important and that respect is necessary. Thanks. Some great insights from our panelists. Um, I would like to apologize to a lot of the questions that we didn't get to actually go into. There's so many good ones. Um, you know, some notable ones is whether we look at people splitting into the have and have nots because of the knowledge skills that, you know, people are equipped or not equipped to deal with this kind of environment. We've had people ask about migration, usage of spaces, what happens to, you know, new office space designs and things like that. Um, I'd like to acknowledge all the fantastic questions there. I will field this to the UWA team um, and we'll see how we can address some of them and, and share the questions with the panel, which I'm sure you guys are interested to hear. Um, so I'm going to, I know it's been really, really sort of compressed for time. We've got so much to go through. But what I would like to do is actually um, do a quick wrap up before I hand the baton back to Fiona, who's waiting right there. Um, on behalf of all of us here today, I'd like to thank the panelists, first and foremost, sharing all of your insights, your experience, um, and, and you know where your workplaces and your industry experiences. 
And on behalf of all of the alumni um, of UWA, everyone here today, I'd like to thank the amazing staff at UWA who put all this together, prepped us really, really well, organized everything. I know it's virtual and it's no easier than organizing a real event. So thank you to all of the UWA staff. I've got a lot of people ticking away in the background, fielding the questions, messaging me with things, making sure we've got a you know, great event to share with all the participants. So thank you, UWA. Most of all, I think I'd like to thank um, the hundred or so people who took their time to sit here with us to throw questions our way, um, you know, to get the panelists to share the, their opinions, but taking the time to actually come to a UWA event and supporting all the alumni activities. So thank you, everyone. And I'd like to hand this back to Fiona. First of all, thank you once again, the same as Madeline, to um, the to Madeline and all our panellists. Um, I know that I certainly learned a lot. Um, I lead a team of um, 40 um, very enthusiastic staff. And so, you know, going from right the way from Michael's um, insights into the industry to Nick and more around the SMEs and then Damien and Michelle, uh, um, Damien and Michelle more around the individual employees and the employer, employee relationship with your employees and also then the relationship with the environment you work in um, was certainly very insightful for me and Madeline thank you to you for um, your expert in expertise in moderating this panel it's been very welcomed and we're just really pleased that we're able to offer and um, offer all our alumni this great insight one of the things I just want to pick up it was something that Michelle said and sort of contrary to well building on what Madeline said, I don't think it's about a new normal. Michelle mentioned a new rhythm, and actually I quite like that. And I think that might become um, a bit more use in my lexicon. And um, we hope to see you at a future event soon. And thank you to the Singaporean and Malaysian alumni communities for help working in partnership with us and putting this on. Thanks. Hi everyone, there may be less coffee catch-ups, hugs or high-fives, but we're still part of the global UWA community and have a role to play. The UWA alumni community is committed to helping all of our students, staff and graduates through the COVID-19 crisis. You can help by making a donation, send a message of support, become a mentor, ambassador, give pro bono advice or simply check in with a fellow graduate. Let's all do our part and help the global UWA community.